Well, if we could spend our last few minutes in chapter 5, I'm actually going to water ski over most of it, and then spend some more serious time in the Lamanite curse that we see within it. But we see in chapter 5 more contention coming from Laman and Lemuel. We're back to what we left back in chapter 4 before Nephi interrupted the narrative with his glorious psalm. The last thing we heard from Laman and Lemuel is them grumbling, them plotting the death of Nephi. Dad's gone, nothing's stopping us. And so now we're going to come after little brother. In chapter 5, verse 3, Yea, they did murmur against me, saying, Our younger brother thinks to rule over us. We have had much trial because of him. Wherefore now let us slay him, that we may not be afflicted more because of his words. For behold, we will not have him to be our ruler, for it belongs unto us, who are the elder brethren, to rule over this people. And think about that, how quickly they'd forgotten the words of their father, who had told them, you can still have my first blessing, Laman, if you'll just follow your little brother. You can have the political power if you'll honor his religious role. But Laman wouldn't have any of it. He's guilty of projecting his own problems onto his little brother. It's a scapegoat all over again. And he's trying to rule. No, that's never what he asked for. He's afflicting us. We're being tried by him when it's always been the reverse. It's so interesting what self-deception usually does. And the more we deceive ourselves, the more we end up accusing others. Even those that are trying to help us, like Nephi is. And so what happens here? It's interesting because Nephi is told by God to flee, to pick up and move. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what had happened with Father Lehi? You're not going to be able to change this here where you're starting. You're going to have to pick up and move. And so retreat. This is an inspired retreat. This is not be on the offensive. In fact, it's not even be on the defensive I don't want your brothers to be on the offensive. And so let's just separate ourselves. And sometimes that's the best we can do. If I cannot convince someone to change, perhaps it's time for me simply to end the conversation in hopes that another opportunity may come later on. But that's what Nephi does here. He leaves. And in verse 6, notice this. I love this verse. Wherefore it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family, and also Zoram and his family, and Sam, my elder brother, and his family, and Jacob and Joseph, my younger brethren, no mention of family there, so I wonder if they're still too young for that, and also my sisters and all those who would go with me. Now here we're starting to see the Nephites as a people develop. But notice what defines their decision to follow Nephi. It actually has very little to do with Nephi and much to do with God. The end of verse 6 is so eye-opening. Nephi explains, And all those who would go with me were those who believed in the warnings and the revelations of God. Wherefore, they did hearken unto my words. And do you see what he just said? Why did they follow Nephi? Because of what they felt about him? No. It's because of what they knew about God. It's not just a bunch of Nephi fans. And it's like, hey, he's large in stature, and if we marry into that family, then our kids will be huge. No. It's not that, well, he had such a better attitude than those perpetual murmurers, Laman and Lemuel. Oh, I definitely want to go with him. Nope. This was not a cult of personality. This was not a popularity contest. 
This boiled down to what people thought about God. Remember, Laman and Lemuel knew not the dealings of that God who created them. They never asked God questions because they didn't believe in a God that would reveal answers. As opposed to Nephi, who lived his life that way. I ask and God gives liberally. We just saw that in the psalm. I believe in a God who gives revelation and opens visions and teaches things too wonderful for us. Somehow he's willing to condescend in his loving, tender mercy to teach truth to mere mortals. I believe he did that with my own father, little old Lehi. And when I prayed to know about that from God, how oh, he softened my heart and I never murmured along the way. Sounds like this group of people would be doing something similar. Heavenly Father, are we, should I follow Nephi? It looks like he's just turning tail and running, but, but he said that's what he's been inspired to do. Do I believe in a God who can reveal his will? I do. And therefore, I will hearken to Nephi's words. I really want us to ponder this. As we wrestle, we live in a day that is so anti-institutional. And I can't blame us because institutions have, have done us dirty over and over in the last few generations. I particularly see it among the youth, the rising generation. They are as individualistic and anti-institutional as they come. And sometimes that makes it hard for them to follow prophets. And what's interesting is so often when I hear them talk about prophets that they have a hard time following, so often it seems more personal. And I just don't like Elder so-and-so. Or I just don't agree with the way so what so-and-so said. And it's as if the decision whether or not to follow prophets boiled down to our perspective on those prophets. And it doesn't. That's why this verse is so key in any conversation we might have on whether or not we follow prophet, living prophets of God. The question isn't about the prophet. The question is about God. And do we believe in a God who reveals himself to mere mortals? Honestly, my friends, wrestle with that phrase. Because I don't follow President Nelson because I like President Nelson so much, although he's an incredibly likable guy. I follow him the same, for the same reason I followed President Monson before him, and President Hinckley before him, and President Hunter before him, and President Benson before him. As far back as I can remember, I've had spiritual experiences where the Spirit of God has confirmed to me that God really does speak to choice seers, to living mouthpieces. And because I believe in the warnings and the revelations of God, therefore I follow living prophets. Wrestle with that, ponder that, and then let's move forward. Because for the most part, this chapter is about how the Nephites go from there. What will their life be like now that they're launching out into the unknown on their own with Nephi as their leader? Well, with God as their leader, as we said. Now, it all boils down to one verse that you have to fast forward to find. 
In verse 27, this to me is the central passage that chapter 5 revolves around. Okay, Describing this new people that has just formed, the Nephites, it says in verse 27, it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. And that's the key to the whole chapter. I am not going to go verse by verse here. Instead, I invite you to start at the beginning of 2 Nephi 5 and read the entire chapter through that lens. These are all evidences to prove Nephi's point that this is the manner of happiness. If you want greater happiness and peace and rest, as Abraham said, if you want, if you believe that happiness is the the design of our existence, as Joseph Smith once said, if you, if you want to get out of the valley of sorrow and stop lingering there, then chapter 5 of 2 Nephi describes the manner. How do I live in a happy way? And prayerfully ponder verse by verse by verse. And I think you'll be amazed at what you see. Can I just drop a few hints? Back in verse 6, we saw them following the prophet. And I have found from my own experience that has brought me incredible happiness in my life. In 7 and 8, they find a place to call home. It's where they pitch their tents in a place that they call Nephi. Can you find a place that you can call home? That this is where I want to pitch my tent permanently? Or how about verse 9, when they, they gain a name and an identity that will bless them from that day forward. It's there that they call themselves the people of Nephi. That's who I am. It's what I want to be. It's going to define my identity. It's going to give me rules for the game that I'm playing. And I think there's great unhappiness when we're unsure of who we are. And great happiness when we finally understand our truest identity. President Nelson has taught us that recently as well. What about verse 10, when they are obedient to the commandments of God? Oh, there's a source of happiness. Or verse 11, this is a verse worth reading. The Lord was with us, and we did prosper exceedingly. Oh, there's Emmanuel, the Lord, God with us. And I can't think of a better source of happiness than that. In verse 12, they have the brass plates and the liahona. And that's part of living after the manner of happiness. Having divine direction the scriptures and the spirit pointing the way. Or in verse 14, they figured out a way to defend themselves from their enemies. Nephi takes the sword of Laban and then makes many more after that initial model so that they are prepared to defend themselves. And that's a, that sense of security and safety, that's part of the pursuit of happiness. Or verse 15, they're developing new skills as they're building, as they're planting, there's there's industry here, they're they're creating new things, moving forward in life, and having a goal, having a purpose, having some forward momentum, that's a source of happiness as well. Then verse 16, this is worth reading in its entirety too, a great source of happiness here. I, Nephi, did build a temple, and did construct it after the manner of the temple of Solomon, save it were not built of so many precious things, for they were not to be found upon the land. Wherefore, it could not be built unto Solomon's temple, but the manner of the construction was like unto the temple of Solomon, and the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. The reason I wanted the whole verse there is, I love the description of the temple here. 
because it's everything it could be, but it couldn't be everything. We don't have all the same, we don't have the, the gold from the Queen of Sheba. We don't have the cedars of Lebanon. But we're going to use the best we've got. And that's good enough for God. There's something beautiful about that. I'm going to pattern my life after the Savior's. Even if I'm not made of the same celestial stuff, I'm going to try to pattern my life after the lives of righteous men and women that I've studied in Scripture or seen in life. And though I might not have the exact same materials, I can put in some exceedingly fine work. And God will accept it. Cedar and gold, if I've got it. If not, give God the best you have. By the way, some people worry, like, whoa, 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 temple outside of Jerusalem. Uh, don't worry about that, okay? Uh, there were temples outside of Jerusalem in the Old Testament world that didn't seem to have any problem with, with, with the God of Israel. There have been some interesting studies done on that. And what seemed to be clear prohibitions uh, in, in Scripture seemed to only be emphasized in periods of reform, like in Hezekiah's day and Josiah's day. There's even talk of, of a certain level of pragmatism, that if you are far enough away from Jerusalem, of course you're going to need a place to worship. So temples, be my guest. And, and Lehi, excuse me, Nephi is building one there in the new promised land. Oh, I love the fact that President Nelson is making sure that we all have access, easier and easier access, to the house of the Lord, knowing that being there is part of the manner of happiness. Even those on the isles of the sea, right? As we've talked before. Just a few last things. Verse 17, they were industrious, hard work there. And as I believe Elder Maxwell once said, work will remain a spiritual necessity even if it someday ceases to be a temporal necessity. Even if I don't have to work hard to provide for myself financially, I still need to work hard to provide for myself spiritually. It's just how it works. You'll actually see later on some struggles with idleness and among those that are not following God. And so here, those that are, are working hard. And that, just, that gives us purpose. It gives us momentum. It gives us meaning in life. Uh, if you're struggling with sorrow, maybe it's time to roll up the sleeves and get to work. Or verse 18, there's equality among these people. They want a king, and Nephi says, not a good idea. No, let's all be equal here. And that level of oh, concern for each other as well as for self, there's something powerful there about living after the manner of happiness as well. Verse 26, you see... Jacob and Joseph ordained as priests and teachers. And so roles within our access to the blessings of the priesthood would be a great source of happiness. And then 29 through 32, they recognize and record the hand of God in their life. This is Nephi. This is when Nephi first gets the call. We saw this way back in 1 Nephi chapter 9. I'm supposed to have two sets of plates. And one's going to be more history and one's going to be more ministry. But it's here in 2 Nephi 5 that the Lord first tells Nephi to do that. Uh, he, had, he inserted that earlier to just explain what he's doing. But the command from God came here, 
which means everything we've studied up to this point, first Nephi and now the first five chapters of second Nephi, that's Nephi's recollection. It's him going back and putting the pieces together and crafting a narrative in defense of his thesis that God is a God of tender mercies and that we must come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be saved. Okay? Powerful things. All of that, by the way, is, is what constitutes the manner of happiness. I want to live that way. And honestly, from my own experience, the closer I've, I've been able to live like that, the more happy I have been. That's not to say, though, that happiness is the absence of trial. You remember what Nephi said in the very first verse he wrote on these small plates? Oh, I have seen many afflictions in the course of my days. Nevertheless, I have been highly favored by the Lord in all of my days. And this chapter, where he is describing being so highly favored, he's also describing the afflictions that he is facing. After all, the chapter ends in verse 34. It sufficeth me to say that forty years had passed away, and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren. Sadly, those swords of Laban came in handy. By the way, this also seems to suggest there were probably other multitudes and other peoples living nearby in the Promised Land. Because forty years later is probably not enough time to for some brothers to, defend, to, to divide out and then start arguing and fighting each other. I don't know if I would call, I'd call it contention, but I don't think I'd call it a war. A small family feud, perhaps, but a war? Well, if the Lamanites are intermingling with surrounding peoples that don't want have, to have anything to do with the God of some distant Israel, never heard of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob? I don't, I don't know, Joseph, whoever that is? Whereas, might there be other people that are hearing these words of wisdom, that are learning about Scripture written on plates of brass, that are coming to see a group of people that are living after a manner of happiness and are gravitating to live in similar ways? Are we seeing the, the nuclei, Laman and Nephi, and Lamanites, and Nephites, and surrounding people starting to gravitate to one side or the other. If this is Deuteronomy, and we're here in this promised land, and there are other people, are we mixing and mingling? Are we remaining separate? Are we making a difference in their lives, or are they making a difference in ours? We have set before us life and death, blessings and cursings, and which way will we go? That's the final thing I, we need to discuss in this chapter before we end this week's study. Because it is a choice of blessings or cursings. And again, that's Deuteronomy. That's the ancient Near East. Other scholars have pointed out some fascinating parallels between what you see in 2 Nephi chapter 5 and what you see in, in these suzerain tra uh, treaties in the ancient Near East. As people in Mesopotamia, the Assyrians and others are deciding will we follow this king or will we not? And here's people deciding if they'll follow Nephi. Uh, to lay out the blessings of obedience to the sovereign or to lay out the threats of curses that will come if you don't follow. Oh, the, the people of ancient Israel had to wrestle with those kinds of choices when the Assyrians came, when the Babylonians came, and so forth. 
and now they're deciding similar things here in the new world. So to wrestle with that, that in some ways historically contextualizes the appearance of this so-called Lamanite curse because it's been in context of lessons on blessings and cursings. Uh, this is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and six tribes yelling blessings and six tribes yelling curses and we standing in the valley of decision having to make up our mind. And will we go with Nephi? Will we go with Laman? What do we know about God? What do we not believe about him? And what will the results of our decisions be? For that, therefore, we need to go to verse 19 through 25. I skipped over those ones as we were flying over to see elements of the manner of happiness. But these verses are the ones that first posit some kind of curse upon the Lamanites. Can we read these slowly and carefully, not to get ahead of ourselves? And we need to hold on to these verses to when we get to Jacob chapter 3, for example, because there's gonna, Jacob's wrestling with these issues and it's still pretty fresh, the next generation. We're going to really need to hold on to these when we get to Alma chapter 3. And the, this whole topic is brought back to mind because of what the Amlicites are doing at the time. We're going to have to wrestle with this when we meet Samuel the Lamanite and what appears to be some Nephite racism against Lamanites. And why would we listen to you? Samuel himself calls it out and, and <laughs> points to the elephant in the room. Uh, that there's difference between Nephites and Lamanites, and will you get over that, and will you listen to me? Can you? We'll see some of that when the sons of Mosiah go out to teach Lamanites, and how do the Nephites react? I mean, the conflict and friction between Nephites and Lamanites will, will underlie the rest of the history of, in the Book of Mormon, and it all starts here. So go to verse 19. And behold, the words of the Lord had been fulfilled unto my brethren, which he spake concerning them, that I should be their ruler and their teacher. Wherefore, I had been their ruler and their teacher according to the commandments of the Lord until the time they sought to take away my life. And they'd been warned about that as early as, what, 1 Nephi chapter 3? when they're beating Nephi with a stick and the angel has to break it up and lets them know, you're already deciding who's going to be in charge here. Uh, mess of pottage, anyone? What, what are you choosing? Lehi had reiterated that and Nephi has been a ruler and teacher to them, would have remained a teacher spiritually. They could have ruled politically. First blessing still could have been theirs, but no. They rejected all of that. They did the about face, and instead of facing the mountain of blessings, they start gravitating toward the mountain of cursings. That's the only other option there is. Okay, Remember, think of this in an ancient Near Eastern context. What's going on here? Then verse 20, and again, read slowly, read carefully. Wherefore, and wherefore means consequently, as a result, because they have rejected Nephi as their ruler and teacher, because they've turned away from blessings and toward cursings, that's what they'll get. So, wherefore, the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying, that inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. 
Now, to be cut off, there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage behind language like that. I mean, as a branch, they were cut off, but only to be transplanted in in different soil. But to cut yourself off from God, it's interesting because in Hebrew, cut is the word you use for what you do with covenant. Like we would say, I'll, I'll cut you a deal. Well, they would cut a covenant. Think back to Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham, to renew the covenant, is told to cut animals in half and to lay them out side by side. So there it is marking a covenant path that Abraham is being invited to walk in. Okay, All the blessings lie within this path. Don't go outside it. Don't go beyond what we've cut, because there, we, there you will be cut off. Think about Adam and Eve and the spiritual death that came upon them when they left the Garden of Eden, when they were exiled from Eden. And to be cut off from the presence of God, that is spiritual death. That is the ultimate curse. So far, that's the only thing we've seen. But as we are discussing this curse, you have to keep in mind that what it boils down to originally is to be cut off from the presence of God because they wouldn't cut covenants with Him. You understand? You with me so far? If so, now you're ready for verse 21, and this is where it gets hard. He had caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. And remember, what's the curse so far? The only thing we've seen is that they've cut themselves off from God. And that is as sore a curse as you can imagine. Their iniquity has cut them off from God. That has always been the curse. In pre-mortality, what happened when Lucifer and the third of the host of heaven rebelled against God? They were cut off from him. Sorest curse imaginable. What happened with Adam and Eve? Cut off from their presence. Spiritual death. What happened with Cain? Cut off from the presence of God. That is always the curse. It remains the curse to this day. The presence or absence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's life or death, and the choice is set before us. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Oh yeah, we're gravitating to one mountain or the other every day of our lives. He then says, on the heels of this cursing, this sore cursing, he explains, Behold, they had hardened their hearts against him. That's why they wouldn't come. That they had become like unto a flint. How's that for hard-hearted? How's that for making sparks for yourself to follow? That's what Isaiah says. Instead of following the light of the world. It's all that flint's good for now. Wherefore, and this is the problematic passage. Wherefore, so as a consequence of all of that, as, as a result of the cursing that has come upon them, as a result of being cut off from God, because remember, if they're not following Nephi, what else have they lost? A God who directs his children. They've lost prophetic guidance. They've lost the liahona. They've lost the brass plates. They've lost the word of God. They've lost priesthood authority like Jacob and Joseph are given. They've lost access to the temple of God. They have cut themselves off from the covenant. Now, of course, God will still hold to his side of the covenant and wait for them to come to their senses and repent of their sins. They are not cut off forever. That is the purpose of the Book of Mormon, the reassurance of that reality. But until that day comes, they are cut off from the presence of God. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, 
the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. And that's the problematic passage. What do we do with that phrase, a skin of blackness? What do we do with that thought of not being enticing? What do we make of the words white and fair and delightsome? That's a hard thing. And we won't be able to tie everything up with a nice tidy bow, especially not today, because this is all we're getting here. It will become much more clear when we get to Jacob 3, and especially when we get to Alma 3. So if you need to jump ahead and study those chapters, be my guest. In fact, four years ago, I started in Jacob. Uh, I, with, with COVID, when COVID hit, I didn't get to teach Jacob 3. We, that had already passed, so we'll get there in a month or so. But I did teach Alma chapter 3. So if you, if you can't hold your horses, <laughs> if you're impatient in a good way, feel free to go find the lesson where I taught Alma 3, and it helps us navigate and make sense of language like this from a later generation. But let's wrestle with each of them. There's so many scholars have, have done just that, have tried to make sense of this, have tried to understand, because unfortunately, verses like this have been, have been wrested to our own destruction. Verses like this have been used to justify racial discord and, and racist feelings. Just like the so-called curse of Cain and the so-called curse of Ham were unwisely used to justify racism in the past from a biblical standpoint. In some ways, this is the Book of Mormon equivalent of that, and it can get equally messy if we're not careful. Now, those who have tried to be careful have interpreted this in a lot of different ways, and that can add to the confusion because there's so many different possibilities. Some have taken this, the majority of people throughout history have taken this literally, that there was some kind of alteration in the pigmentation of the skin of the Lamanites. And a God who can do anything, we'd have to say that that would be possible. Now, some have said that the literal interpretation of this and a change in skin color could either have happened immediately and therefore supernaturally, where God simply gives the Lamanites a, a change of skin color, that he, he orchestrates this. And again, it's immediate and it's supernatural. Another possibility for literalists that are trying to make sense of this is rather than immediate, could it be gradual? And rather than supernatural, could it be totally natural? Because if there are other civilizations in the new world, if there are other people among whom the Lamanites are beginning to mix and mingle and intermarry, if a colony of Middle Eastern Hebrews has come to a, an ancient American setting and discovered people of darker skin color, and then the, the Nephites decide to keep themselves separate as a covenant community, again, that is following the example or the precedent of the ancient Israelites when they enter the Promised Land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, and remember this is our Book of Mormon equivalent of Deuteronomy, they are told not to intermarry that it, will lead, it, won't lead to their con, it won't lead to the Canaanites' conversion to the God of Israel. It will lead to the Israelites' deconversion to the gods of the Canaanites. So, no, I do, not want to I do not want you to marry outside of the covenant. If Nephi is feeling that same sense of 
of identity and the need to be an, an isolated community of, of covenant keepers, then the Lamanites wouldn't feel that way at all. And if they are intermarrying, then with the passage of time, gradually, is there a change of skin color to suggest that they have intermarried with native populations? Again, that's one possibility that some scholars have raised. Now again, those two, the miraculous or the non-miraculous, are still dealing with a literal skin of blackness that has come upon the Lamanites. But there are other possibilities as well. Other scholars have suggested that this could all be symbolic and that the skin of blackness could simply be a metaphor for your countenance. And do you have the light of Christ in your countenance? Or is it more of a dark and sullen view upon the world? And so this kind of dark cloud that hovers over you constantly, is this a symbol of wickedness as opposed to a symbol of righteousness, which would, which would describe the Nephites? Some have taken skins literally, but said that these could be animal skins rather than human skins. So it's what the Lamanites are wearing. If you're seeing perhaps high priestly robes being given to Jacob and Joseph as they are priests and teachers, are Lamanites taking upon themselves other types of ceremonial clothing? An anti-garment, if you want to call it that way. Uh, some We'll see later when they are dyeing the skins of, of, of sheep red and wearing that. And so a skin of blackness, could this be some kind of animal skin that they are wearing? compared to the coats of skins that were given to Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, are the Lamanites in some ways exposing their spiritual nakedness with some kind of animal skin that is, that is dark, metaphorically speaking. Another possibility some have raised, could this be some kind of tattoo or skin pigmentation that the Lamanites are doing upon themselves to stand out from their Nephite brothers? Uh, and is that something that is marking them for some kind of distinction and differentiation? And then more recently, uh, just last year, a new article was written by the same good brother who wrote about the iron rod being a shepherd's staff that's unbreakable. Uh, he describes with some fascinating research from ancient Assyria that according to a, and again, the same time period where uh, it's the aftermath of all of that, that, that Lehi's family is departing from Jerusalem that if you do not agree to follow the, the king, and again, are you agreeing to follow Nephi? But if you don't, they were cursed. Again, blessings and cursings, that's how it all worked with these, these treaties. That part of the curse, according to this uh, ancient Assyrian document, was a, a skin of blackness. And that was metaphorical to suggest wasting away and looking like death warmed over. And there's some evidence there throughout some other ancient Near Eastern texts, including the Old Testament itself, that that could be, oh, again, wasting away. You think of plague and famine and sickness and death. You think about the black horse in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, that kind of thing. And that color being used symbolically as a warning that, that you, are, you are going... You're walking into the valley of the shadow of death, the shadow of death, and these shadows are haunting you. And so if you do not choose life, then by default you are choosing death. And that skin of blackness is the metaphorical result.
Now, those are all kinds of possibilities. There may be more that I'm not aware of. But there have been interesting articles and studies written about all these ones that I've just listed. And so if you're interested and really want to dig into the, into the details, be my guest. These are things, yes, worth wrestling with. But a couple things to consider as you do also. Because you have to keep the whole Book of Mormon in mind. And there are places where it seems that, yeah, that could simply be metaphorical. And that, in some ways, softens the blow. And we don't have to use this as some kind of potential justification for racial problems that we see in our day and and in previous generations. But there are other places where it's, oh, it sure seems like there's something visible here. Uh, So I will leave you to decide on which side of those issues you want to come down, especially as we continue studying throughout the rest of this book. I would particularly want to point out that especially in later chapters, Alma 3 being the best, there seems to be a very clear distinction, almost every time it's brought up, between curse and mark. And it's usually the curse, definite article. There's only one. It's the same curse as always as opposed to a mark, indefinite article, just something that distinguishes people. And again, that could be literal or it could be symbolic. It could be something visible to the eye or simply something detectable to the spirit of discernment that something's not quite right here. Okay? There, as it's described here from the very beginning, not to be enticing, there needs to be something to distinguish so you can decide which side you're on and which side they are on and whether you want to be on the same side as them. Okay? I think it's actually interesting to wrestle with racism here because there are, I've, I've read some scholars who have pointed out, well, race is more of a social construct and it is later in human history that it, that even becomes an issue. So if this is 600 BC, give or take, we're still, then racism is an anachronism. And this couldn't possibly be racism. To which I say, well, is that just a semantic get out of jail card? When, if you don't want to call it racism, fine. It's still prejudice. It's still bigotry of some sort. It's still prejudice, meaning pre, before, judice, judge. I'm judging someone based on some, some outward aspect. And that's, that's, seriously problematic too. Whether you call it race or not, there's still a sense of othering going on here. And that's something we're all going to have to wrestle with, even if there's no racial undertones. Does that make sense? Uh, I would also want to make it crystal clear that this has nothing to do with the kind of racism that has existed in in the modern day that unfortunately targets those of African descent more than anyone else. That is, there's a horrific history there. And even within the church, in our history of racial restriction or priesthood restriction based on race, that has nothing to do with this because it has nothing to do with Africa. And unfortunately, that restriction was confined to those of African descent. Again, that is a whole other messy history that is worth wrestling with. And I've done that in other, in, when we've talked about the second official declaration and the Doctrine and Covenants year and so on. So we don't have time to do it right here. But please understand that this has nothing, these passages have nothing to do with racial restrictions for priesthood in, 
in the days from Brigham Young up until Spencer W. Kimball. Okay? We have to keep that separate as well. But getting back to the text and what's going, what's going on here in the Book of Mormon, notice the three words that, uh, that are brought up. That they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome. I went through and tried to look all of those words up from both throughout the Book of Mormon text as well as throughout biblical text. And when it comes to white, please be careful with that. These would have been Middle Eastern Hebrews, not North, Northern European Caucasians. We're not talking about that kind of white. Here in Scripture, white is typically used symbolically rather than literally to suggest a degree of purity and holiness that we cannot achieve on our own. To think about the fruit of the tree of life that was whiter above all that is white. So to think about a people of moral purity, of ethical cleanliness, of closeness to God, of garments washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That's what the Nephites are striving to be through the grace of God. Whereas the Lamanites want nothing to do with that kind of symbolic whiteness. When it comes to being fair, we quickly jump to a conclusion that this is fair as in beautiful, as in uh, visually appealing. And while that can sometimes be a, a meaning for that, in the 1828 dictionary, other definitions for fair included clear, free from spots, free from a dark hue. It could mean honest. It could mean honorable. Sometimes in the scriptures, fair is used to denote physical beauty, but often it is used to describe a spiritual fairness, a beauty that is in the eye of the spiritual beholder. Okay, And then... In the word delightsome, 1828 dictionary speaks of being very pleasing, very delightful. In the Book of Mormon, the word delightsome appears eight times, and it's always metaphorical. It speaks of a pure and delightsome people. Later it says that as many as shall believe in Christ shall also become a delightsome people. Or how about this one? Once again, they come to the knowledge of God, yea, the redemption of Christ, that they may once again be a delightsome people. Over and over throughout the Book of Mormon, delightsome is, is a spiritual state, not some kind of visible, physical one. And so please be careful with that as well. What we're seeing so far is, do you want to be on God's side or not? Do you want to, do you want to seek the blessings of God? Or are you willing to cut yourself off and expose yourself to all the curses that have been listed in Deuteronomy and, and 2 Nephi and so forth? Because if you keep reading the text of 2 Nephi 5, notice what the Lord says in verse 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people. And that's strong language too. But again, are we talking loathsome based not on some kind of racial attribute, not some kind of visible feature, but rather they are cut off from God and they don't care to ever return? Is, is it sinfulness that is loathsome to me? And it will remain that, notice the next line, save they shall repent of their iniquities. That's the solution. Simply repent. Choose the other mountain. Take blessing instead of cursing. And then keep reading. And cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed. 
for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. That's going to be a key passage once we get to Alma 3, because we see the Amlicites mixing with the Lamanites, and what's going to happen to them? Will they receive the same curse, or is there a difference between the curse and a mark? Well, this passage ends, the Lord spake it, and it was done. And so there it is. But back to the idea of loathsome. Think about this passage from Alma 37:32 and see if it changes your perspective. This is where Alma is saying to his son Helaman, teach them an everlasting hatred against sin and iniquity. That doesn't seem to be a very troublesome passage. Hate sin. Sin ought to be loathsome to you. And if it's sin I'm trying to help you avoid, then that's the point of all of this distinction and differentiation. It's actually interesting when you think about a developmental model uh, of how we grow up and perceive the world. I often reduce this to creation, fall, atonement. There's other substages and so on. But if you take these pillars of eternity and the plan of salvation and take creation, fall, atonement, in the creation stage, which is innocence, it's Eden, that's where identity formation takes place. It's where we decide who we are, which, for better or worse, and there's parts of both, is usually a matter of who we aren't. We, it, it's in that stage where things we, we tend toward black and white thinking. We tend towards us and them kinds of dichotomies. And again, there's value there in establishing group identity and group cohesion. It's not meant to stay there, though. It's when our children are little, we tell them not to talk to strangers. On their mission, I hope they talk to every stranger they can. But what ends up happening is you go from creation stage with identity formation. And that seems to be what's happening here. We are now the Nephites. They are now the Lamanites. There's a difference and we're not supposed to be like them. As time goes on, though, and we move from creation to fall, sadly, fall is usually an overcorrection instead of a correction. And the things that were right about the creation become wrong in the fall, and the things that were wrong in creation often become right in the fall. We, we, like I say, we swing the pendulum too far, and when it was, it was in-group versus out-group, but with real identities in creation, in the fall stage, we are so put off by in-group, out-group kinds of dichotomies that we try to erase every barrier. There's, there's something good about that, but we lose any sense of identity along the way, and that's not so good, especially when our identity is supposed to be children of the covenant, the disciples of Christ. So the real question then is, how do we correct without overcorrecting? And to me, the beautiful thing about reaching the atonement stage is you've proven the contraries of creation and fall stage. And the positives of creation offset the negatives of fall and vice versa. That's how you get to atonement. And so to hold on to some sense of identity, but not use it to other, other people, I know that's easier said than done. That's hard. But that's what we're doing in the atonement stage. That's how we're proving contraries. We are balancing unity and diversity, rejoicing in the positives of each. We are, well, we're living the Abrahamic covenant, which balances exclusivity with inclusivity. In thee and in thy seed, that's your identity. There's exclusivity. That's creation stage. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? 
That's radical inclusivity. That's more fall stage, open-mindedness. And if you can couple the two and hold them in active tension, prove the paradox, welcome to the atonement stage. It's going to take a long time for the Nephites and Lamanites to get there. It's going to take the Nephites on top looking down at the Lamanites and then a reversal in the days of Samuel where the Lamanites are more righteous than the Nephites. It's this fascinating back and forth we'll see throughout Book of Mormon history until you get to fourth Nephi when there are no ites at all. Ah, that's where we reached the atonement stage. But it took Jesus to, to get us there. This is where we're starting. We still have a long way to go. And it, it's kind of a rough beginning, to be honest. Now, if you read verse 24 and 25, because of their cursing, which again, we are defining, or the Book of Mormon is defining as being cut off from the presence of God and his prophets and his priesthood and his temple and his scriptures and the spirit and the liahona and the brass plates and everything else. Because of that cursing, they did become three things. An idle people, full of mischief, and subtlety. And they did seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. And the Lord God said unto me, They shall be a scourge unto thy seed, to stir them up in remembrance of me. And inasmuch as they will not remember me and hearken unto my words, they shall scourge them even unto destruction. Which is exactly what happened at the end of Mormon and Moroni. Oh, haunting foreshadowing here, as early as 2 Nephi chapter 5. Actually, we saw that earlier, right? Way back in 1 Nephi chapter 12. But what's happening here, think of these three words. And if I'm, this has nothing to do with skin color, whether it's literal or metaphoric. This has everything to do with the presence or absence of the Spirit in your life. The presence or absence of God. Idleness. We will see repeatedly throughout the Book of Mormon an interesting connection between what I call idleness and idleness, spelled differently. I-D-L-E and I-D-O-L. That kind of idleness is also called idolatry. And often, idolatry and idleness go hand in hand, as do their opposites, worship and work. Real worship requires work. Remember, the Nephites were known for their industriousness, we see that in this exact chapter. But those who do not want God do not want to do the work of worship. They'd rather be idle. Mischief. In our day, that's become something oh, kind of laughable, a little embarrassing, but uh, no harm done. It's just a bunch of mischievous kids, right? But in the 1828 dictionary, mischief is a lot more intense than that. It means harm and hurt and injury and damage and evil, whether intended or not. And so that kind of mischief, because God is not there, you do not have any hatred of sin or iniquity. And finally, subtle. And in the 1828 dictionary, again, the words that, as they exist in Joseph's mind at the time, uh, subtle means to be sly in design, to be artful, to be cunning. And that describes what these Lamanites are becoming, because they have to trick their way into... Positions of power and authority. We'll see more of this with the Gadianton robbers and secret combinations. Oh, there's subtlety left and right. That was actually the word used to describe Satan in, as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And so, having lost God and all of those godly gifts, 
That's what the Lamanites have left themselves to become. They've cut themselves off. And yet what will happen as time goes on, they will become a scourge in the hand of God to scourge the Nephites that should have known better. And that idea comes up repeatedly, including from Samuel the Lamanite. You know, in the, in the book of Isaiah, and there's so many parallels and precedents from Isaiah that Nephi is going to draw upon. The Assyrians are described as an axe or a rod. And they are a tool in the Lord's hands, but it's a tool of destruction because the northern tribes have cut themselves off from God and therefore will be cursed. There is a dark cloud hanging over them now. There is death and destruction. You can see it. You can see it in the skin of their face, on the countenance about them. And in a similar way, as, as Assyria is being used to scourge the northern kingdom, that Babylon is used to scourge the southern kingdom, the Lamanites will be used as a scourge that ends up destroying the Nephite nation when all is said and done. Now, until then, there's not a lot of love loss between Israelites and Assyrians, or Judahites and Babylonians, or Nephites and Lamanites. That's part of the problem, but also part of God's solution. In the meantime, the Nephites, yes, will become as wicked as the Lamanites. And then this sad prophecy will, will come to a painful fulfillment. In some ways, it's going to be so traumatic for, for Nephi to have just gone through this chapter. Yes, it was the manner of happiness, but man, it hurt to work toward this kind of happiness because we lost our family. And, and the pain that they're dealing with, this is a second scattering. They had to pick up and be scattered from the old promised land to come to a new one. They had the first land of their inheritance. Now they are scattered a second time to go off to a new place that they call the land of Nephi. Prepare yourself. There's going to be a third scattering and they're going to leave that land behind too in the days of Mosiah. But here, this is going to be such a, an opening of old wounds and a painful reminder of the scattering that they endured the first time that starting next week in chapter 6, Nephi is going to ask his, his anxious younger brother, Jacob, to comfort their souls through the words of Isaiah. He's going to ask his brother to teach the same passages that Nephi himself had taught after they were scattered from the old world to the new, which again suggests the level of trauma that they are experiencing through this second scattering. It's family now. It's not just the wicked people of Jerusalem. It's my brothers. It's my nephews and nieces. It's cousins against cousins. As we are all deciding for ourselves if it's blessings or cursings that we want. My friends, that is the choice before each one of us. And again, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. I pray we are choosing wisely. And well, that's the message of 2 Nephi 5. With that, we can end this lesson with hopefully a review that will bring better memories of what we've studied this week. 
how there are so many magnificent one-liners. I mean, thank the, the Psalm of Nephi, that's all it is. One after the next after the next. I'll have to be a little more selective than usual. But if I can re review these words and then close today with the help of John Tanner, wonderful English professor from BYU, uh, expert in Shakespeare and almost as good a writer, if I do say so. He took the Psalm of Nephi and turned it into the Song of Nephi, since that's what Psalms are supposed to be. Now, I'll include a link where you can hear BYU singers perform it. Uh, it's an absolute masterpiece. You take Nephi's lyrics, pass them through the hands of a Shakespeare expert to make them rhyme, and then bring in the music of Be Still My Soul, and yeah, you got yourself a masterpiece. So we'll end with those words and, and hopefully an invitation for you to go and listen to it performed as if Nephi were every tenor and bass himself. Well, here are some one-liners to hold on to. For thy security forever. He obtained a promise of the Lord, a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins, the knowledge of the covenants, do none other work save the work which I shall command. Shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions. And out of weakness he shall be made strong. Unto the restoring thee, O house of Israel, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. For I know their faith according to the simpleness of their words. The weakness of their words will I make strong in their faith. They shall hearken unto the words of the book. Do much good, both in word and in deed, bringing to pass much restoration. If ye are brought up in the way ye should go, the things of my soul my soul delighteth in the scriptures. My heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. O wretched man that I am! Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. My God hath been my support. He hath filled me with his love. Too great for man! in so much mercy. Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. My God and the rock of my salvation. O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Strict in the plain road, encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness. O Lord, I have trusted in Thee, and I will trust in Thee forever. Who believed in the warnings and the revelations of God, and the Lord was with us, to labor with their hands, to stir them up in remembrance of me. We lived after the manner of happiness. And I don't know a better manner of happiness than the happiness that comes through Jesus Christ. So to hear Nephi's psalm, 
set to music. I love the Lord. In him my soul delights. Upon his word I ponder day and night. He's heard my cry, brought visions to my sleep, and kept me safe o'er deserts and the deep. He's filled my heart with his consuming love and borne me high on wings of his great dove. Yet oft I groan, O wretched man am I. My flesh is weak, and I am encompassed by a world of sin which holds me in its thrall if I give in and two temptations fall. Then strength grows slack, I waste in sorrow's veil, my peace destroyed, my enemies prevail. Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, my heart, and let me praise again. The Lord my God, who is my rock and stay, to keep me strict upon his straight, plain way. Oh, let me shake at the first sight of sin, and thus escape my foes without and in. My friends, I don't know of a better way to find real happiness, to live after its manner, than to pattern our lives after the Savior Jesus Christ to come unto him, to allow him to, to wipe away every tear from every eye, to tell our souls to awake and to rejoice in him. I am so grateful for his redeeming love. And if you ever feel to linger in the valley of sorrow, please know there is a path to better days ahead rather than being encompassed about by our sins and our shortcomings, we can be encircled about forever in the arms of his redeeming love.